So today, I want to jump into the second week of a series that I started last week. As you can see, it's called Algorithms. Now, I don't often promote our, our services in hindsight, but if you missed last weekend's service, let me encourage you, go back on our website, download the podcast, find that service, because this week, many people have shared the way that God has used that message to just minister to them. And I, I want to just piggyback off of those thoughts today and, and expect and pray that God is going to give us a fresh application of his word in our lives today. Now, if you're wondering with this algorithms idea where we're going, let me just give you a couple of examples of, of how, how I brush shoulders with algorithms in my life. And, and I'm sure many of you could uh, testify to the same. Here's an example. If you ever shopped on Amazon or eBay, then you probably see on the page there, based on previous purchases, you might like dot, dot, dot. And then there's all these other items that are strategically marketed towards you. They're not just random. They're based off your shopping history. The algorithms decide that. The algorithm decides what you are most likely to buy next. And so they put those things in front of you to try to keep you coming back for more. Now, sometimes those things work against you. Like in my case, my wife and I, we have the same Amazon account. And so it's really hard to shop for somebody else because then, you know, like I, I know what I'm going to get. You know what I mean? Like I get on Amazon and at the bottom, it says based on previous purchases, you might also like, and there's like five different colors of fleeces. So I'm like, I guess I got a fleece. It's coming. You know, I, I guess that's what I'm getting for my birthday. I'm getting a fleece. But the algorithm says you're most likely to buy this, and so it puts it out there. Here's another way that I experience algorithms. Uh, listening to streaming music services like Spotify or Pandora. You know, you listen, you pick a song or an artist, and you listen to it, and then other suggested artists pop up. And if you don't pick another song, it'll just pick one for you. Like for me, a, a lot of times I like to just listen to piano music while I'm studying. And so I'll, I'll just have it playing, you know, I have the, the browser closed down on my laptop and it's just playing piano music. And, and if I don't pay attention to it after about, you know, 60 minutes, that album ends and then the next album ends. And then, and after about two or three albums, the algorithm gets off into some weird like indie music, you know what I'm here? Like a sitar and like monastery chants. And I'm like, what, what am I listening to? What is this? You know, the algorithm has taken me off into a musical genre I didn't really want to go to. And so I got to go back and I got to pick my own music and I got to reset the algorithm. Or, or maybe you've experienced it like this when you're watching videos on YouTube. You got to be quick because you only get about three seconds after your video ends and then two words pop up on the screen, up next. And, and the algorithm just picks another video that you, they think you might like. Just try to keep you tuned in, stay on the website. And, and sometimes that can be great. I mean, like a couple weeks ago, I was getting ready to preach the last message in our Above and Beyond series. I was getting ready to preach on heaven. And, and it was Sunday morning, and, and I'm, I'm getting ready, and I pulled up on YouTube one of the songs that we were going to do in the worship set that day. And so I'm listening to that song while I'm getting ready, and, and my phone's over there on the counter, and then all of a sudden, that song ends, and those words pop up, up next. And, and it just picks a different song that it thinks I'm going to like, and it picked a song that I hadn't even thought of 
in weeks, it picked this Chris Tomlin worship song about heaven. And it was so perfect for what I was getting ready to preach about that morning. It messed me up right there in front of the mirror. I mean, I'm like trying to get ready for church, and all of a sudden I'm like, yes, that's so good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, the algorithm took me into the throne room. I was just like having worship. It was awesome. Up next, the algorithm just moves you to the next thing. But here's the thought this morning that I want you to think about with me for a few moments. The company's algorithm makes suggestions, and those suggestions influence our choices, and our choices determine our actions, and our actions determine our life. If you're trekking with me, what I'm trying to say is that if you live your life just with the up next, whatever's coming, I'm just going to roll with it mentality, then what happens is you become the person that the circumstances are telling you you should be instead of the person that God made you to be. The algorithm just says this is how you respond in this situation. The algorithm just says that this is who you're supposed to be. And here's what happens. The longer we live our lives that way, our life lens begins to narrow. Our perspective begins to narrow. We, we miss some of the light and the color and the nuance of what God wants to do. And by the way, it's more than just in the entertainment world that we experience this. I was thinking this week, and, and I don't want to start a debate on the floor, but, but I think all of us are familiar with another way that algorithms have influenced culture, because for the last several years, there's been a lot of headline news and hot topic debates about election tampering, right? About voter manipulation, accusations against companies like Google who determine what you see and what you don't see and, and how much you see and, and Facebook. And, and if everybody would just think for themselves and make up their own mind, how many of you know none of that would matter? But the reason it matters and the reason people argue about it and the reason that there's, there's, there's threats and debates about it is because we all know that we're influenced by the algorithm. We all know that on some level, you can sway public opinion by governing what is seen and what is heard and what is known. The algorithm changes the opinion. You know, it was interesting. I, I read a report that said, according to research, children ask 125 probing questions per day. Adults, on the other hand, ask six. Six probing questions a day. That means somewhere between your childhood and your adulthood, you lost 119 good questions. How in the world is that possible? It means at some point, most of us stopped asking questions and we started making assumptions, right? We start making assumptions, our thought process, the algorithm of how we look at it. That's what I'm talking about. It becomes fixed and the lens of our life begins to narrow. I want to tell you today, God has a purpose. God has a plan. God has promises that are yours and that are mine in Christ Jesus. But the reality is Satan and your circumstances and even yourself can write a different algorithm for a different outcome than the plan of God. 
And you, you can make up your mind today. You can just live your life with the up next mentality. You can just, whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and you can just binge watch your life as it scrolls by, or you can create a new algorithm. I'm going to tell you how you do it. You create a new algorithm by making a decision. Make a decision. What do you desire? What do you want? I want you to go with me to John chapter 5 today, and I want you to see a story in the first several verses of John chapter 5. John 5 describes that there was a pool near the sheep gate in Jerusalem, a place called Bethesda, and this pool was surrounded by five covered colonnades or porches. And what makes this pool significant is it says in verse 3 of John 5 that it was here in this place on these porches around this pool it says here a great number of disabled people used to lie the blind the lame and the paralyzed but on this day in John chapter 5 Jesus the famous miracle working rabbi from Galilee decides to go to the pool. Jesus shows up there, and I don't want you to miss what's about to happen. He's about to confront a cultural algorithm. He's about to confront a way of thinking that, that is permeating everyone in that culture and especially around that pool. See, for the disabled, for the lame, for the paralyzed, the algorithm of their life said that there's no way that this rabbi is going to come talk to me, much less would he ever touch me. And there is no way that he would actually offer to heal me. We're the outcast. We're the abandoned. We're the forgotten. We're the unlovable, the untouchable. And so there's no, there's no, there's no process cognitively of believing that Jesus is actually going to come and offer something to us. In fact, they weren't there for Jesus. The, the story bears out the reason that they were there at that pool is because they had this belief that an angel of the Lord every once in a while would come and stir the waters. And if they could be the first one to get into the waters after they were stirred, then they could be healed. And we'll read that later in verse 7. And so they have this, this hope that just maybe, maybe they can be healed if they can get into the water before anybody else. Look at verse 5 and 6. It says, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, 38 years is a long time by anyone's standard, but the, the average life expectancy around this time was about 40 years. So to emphasize that this guy's been an invalid for 38 years, I really think what John is telling us is nobody has ever seen him in any other situation than the one he's in. John's trying to communicate how desperate this guy's need really is. And maybe, just maybe, that's the reason that of all the people around the pool, Jesus chose him. For 38 years, he was an invalid. Look at verse 6. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there, and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked him, do you want to get well? Can we all just read that question out loud? Do you want to get well? 
Doesn't that seem like a strange question to ask a guy who's, who's an invalid and who is laying beside a pool that's known to have healing properties, and he's been laying there for 38 years? Jesus comes to this man, and he says, do you want to get well? But can I tell you today, the reason Jesus asked that question is because he knows something to be true, and maybe you found this too. You can't help somebody that doesn't want to help themselves. You ever had that disappointing reality? I mean, you've done what you can do. You want to help them. They're just, they just not ready for it. They don't want it. I mean, you, you can try to encourage them and coach them, but if they don't want to help themselves, there's just nothing you can really do to change their situation. And, and no place is that more epitomized than on the cross. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, the Bible tells us that there were two criminals hanging on his right and on his left. One of them reached out to Jesus. They illustrated the reality that it's never too late for a miracle. No good works that he could offer. But he just said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at that man lovingly and he said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. He needed help. He knew he needed help. He needed a savior in that moment and he called on Jesus. But the other criminal, the Bible says the other criminal cursed Jesus and he mocked him. He was six feet from salvation. But you can't help somebody that doesn't want help. And so Jesus asked this man who's been laying there for 38 years, do you want to get well? You know what I believe he was saying when he asked him that? If we just push into the question a little bit more, I think what Jesus was really saying is, are you willing to do something you've never done before? Because how many of you know that can be scary? Are you willing to do something you've never done before? Because move forward to verse 8. The next thing Jesus says to the man, the next thing he says is, get up. No, wait, I said that wrong. There's an exclamation point. I think the punctuation's inspired too. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. The man's been laying there for 38 years. Years, my translation, get up. It's time to carry your own weight. I think Jesus is saying, are, are you actually ready for me to do the thing that you think you want me to do in your life? See, the truth is, there's a lot of people that have learned how to function in their dysfunction. There's a lot of people that have grown quite comfortable with the bondage of their life. It used to be a diagnosis. Now it's an identity. It's who they are. It's how they're known. It's their, it's their crutch. It's their fallback. It's their go-to excuse. And Jesus is saying, look, before I do anything supernatural, I just got to know, do you really want me to do something? I mean, if, 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 if your thought process is going to change, we have to begin here. You have to just make a decision. See, I, I, think, I think we're a lot more like the Israelites that God delivered out of Egypt than we even realize. See, God used Moses to deliver them out of Egypt, but it took 40 years of wandering through the wilderness before they got to the edge of the promised land. And think about that 40 years. That's a whole generation. That's a lifetime. During those 40 years, God always provided food for them from heaven. Manna came from heaven. God always provided water 
If they weren't close to water, he did it supernaturally, causing it to flow from a rock. God always met their needs. For 40 years, the Bible says their clothes never wore out. Never had to make new clothes. Their shoes never wore out. Never had to get new shoes. 40 years of walking is a long time for one pair of shoe leather. And yet, God provided for their needs until finally, one day, they got to the edge of the promised land. They got to the place where God was about to take them in, and they were going to have to do some things. And in that moment, God invites them, are, are you ready? Are, are you ready? Do you want this freedom? Do you want this promised land that I have for you? And all of a sudden, they started going, man, there's, there's giants over there. We, we didn't have to fight too many battles in the wilderness. It was kind of nice, you know, living at peace. Wow, you, you mean we're going to have to actually... Plant seed in those gardens and, and till the soil and work the land and we're going to have to dig wells and sew our own clothes and, and get new shoes? You mean you're not going to do it all for, you mean you're not going to let me just lay here? And all of a sudden they started backpedaling. They wanted to go back to Egypt. After 40 years and, and God bringing them so far, they started saying, you know, the, the, Egypt didn't look so bad after all. I mean, they, we always had food to eat. And I think a lot of us are the same way sometimes. I want to challenge you. Just put yourself in the invalid's position for a moment. Imagine that it's you laying there on that mat and ask yourself this question. Would I be willing to do something that I haven't done in 38 years? If it meant getting the results that I want God to give me, if it meant getting the breakthrough that I need, if it meant... God changing things in my family or in my health, in my body, or, or in my mind, in my thinking. Am I willing to do something I haven't done for 38 years? Are you willing to change something about your life so that you can experience the miraculous? See, the question's simple. Do you want to get well? And if you do, you got to make a decision. According to Dr. Edward Miller, he was the 13th dean of Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, by the way. According to Dr. Miller, more than one and a half million Americans undergo a coronary bypass graft every year. And while angioplasty effectively relieves many of the symptoms of clogged arteries, it is a temporary fix. Without a change in eating and exercise habits, the health benefits are short-lived, and patients are told that point blank, he says. Yet, Dr. Miller notes, if you look at people after coronary artery bypass graft, two years later, 90% of them have not changed their lifestyle. Do they want to live? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's an easy amen. Do you want to live? Yes, I want to live. But according to Johns Hopkins, nine out of 10 people would rather die than change. So according to the university, not a stupid question at all, Jesus. Do you want to get well? So what's your algorithm for improving? When Jesus asked the invalid that question, he didn't even answer it. It's yes or no. He doesn't even answer the question. His default algorithm was to just begin to make excuses for why he can't get better. His default thought process was to just point his finger at other people and say, 
who he needs, or if somebody else would help me, maybe I could, but, but I can't right now. His default was to say, I know what it takes to get well, and I can't take the steps that are required to get well. He doesn't even answer the question. Look at verse 7. Jesus asked him, point blank, do you want to get well? Verse 7 says, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So he's already got this figured out. I mean, 38 years of sitting and watching the process, and he knows what it takes to get healed. I, I, need, I need somebody to help me. I need a man to come and put me in the water. And if I could get in the water first, then just maybe. How many of you would just agree with me today that maybe, just maybe, God Elohim, the creator of heaven and earth, has more ideas than you? Can we, can we all just get on board with that thought for a minute? That maybe he's got methods and means that we haven't thought of yet. That maybe our algorithm doesn't see the whole picture. And that was the problem for this man in John 5. He said, yeah, well, no, I, I, I can't get well because I need a man. Some of you, you've been praying that same prayer. God, I, I, need, a, I need a man. Maybe you don't need a man. Maybe the prayer that you're praying is, is too narrow of a lens for your life. The question is, do you want to get well? See, the reality is God will not answer 100% of the prayers you don't pray. That's why it's so important that you start by making a decision. You don't get what you want from God because you don't know what you want. James said it like this, James chapter 4, verse 2. He said, you desire, but you do not have, and so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Now listen to his description. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. So just imagine for a moment that, that it's you lying on a mat this morning, and the rabbi from Galilee, who has all of the authority and healing power of heaven at his disposal, is looking at you this morning, and he's asking you this question, do you want to get well? And if the answer is yes, then you need to reset the algorithm. You got you to change the way that you're looking at it. You got to open the shutter of your life's lens and stop Stop seeing it the way you've always seen it and begin to just believe in the possibilities. You say, well, what's the possibilities? Well, that's a good question. That's the question that Mary asked when the angel Gabriel showed up and said, Mary, I know you're a 16-year-old virgin, but you're going to give birth to the Son of God. She said, how's that possible? And Gabriel told her, he said, with God, all things are possible. All things. Allow the Holy Spirit to begin to broaden the shutter on your lens and recognize the possibilities of a God who does not know impossible. When I was a kid, my sport was wrestling. Not just in high school or middle school or even elementary school, in preschool. My sport was wrestling. And so we spent a lot of Saturdays after Thanksgiving, almost up to Easter, at wrestling tournaments. 
And they would write your weight class on the back of your hand so that the ref could check your weight to make sure you got the right person. I was so young when I started wrestling, I can remember they used to write three, seven on my hand. That's 37 pounds. That was my weight class. And I would go to these tournaments and we would, we would wrestle, you know, four and five and six years old. And, and when I was young and impressionable, and we, we talked about this last week, but when my mind still had a lot of neural plasticity, it was impressionable and thoughts that, that could stay and become the highways of my thought life. In those moments, I can remember something my dad said over and over and over and over and over again. And it, it's, it's, become, it's become, a, become a thought highway for me. And what he would say so many times on those long Saturdays is, don't beat yourself. Don't beat yourself. Maybe you heard it a different way. Maybe you played sports a little older than four and five, and, and, and somebody said to you, hey, don't psych yourself out. Don't let them beat you up here. And, and he would look at me, and he, you know, maybe it was a long day, and I just wanted to go, you know, play with army men or something, or I wanted to go eat a hot dog, but, but he would look at me, try to get me in, in game mode, and he would say, look, don't beat yourself. There's going to be better wrestlers than you. I'm never going to be upset at you if you lose, but I'll be upset if you go out there and you beat yourself. And I feel like this morning there's a lot of believers that are beating themselves. And we're giving the devil too much credit. God doesn't want you to lose the battle in your mind. See, A.W. Tozer, he's a great theologian, he made this statement. I want to read it to you. He said, in nature, everything moves in the direction of its hungers. In the spiritual world, it is not otherwise. We gravitate toward our inward longing, provided, of course, that those longings are strong enough to move us. Think about that. We gravitate towards our inward longings, provided that those longings are strong enough to actually move us. So the question I want to ask you is, is your inward longing strong enough to move you? Is it strong enough to move you? Paul said it like this, Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. He said, set your minds on things above. Can you do me a favor? Can you just touch your head and say, set your mind? Set your mind on things above, not on the earthly things. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says, let us fix our eyes. Come on, just put your hands right here and say, fix our eyes. He said, fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Matthew 5 verse 6, Jesus said this. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. You just put your hands on your stomach and say, hunger and thirst. He said, you're blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I'm talking about an inward longing that is strong enough to move you to action. Set your mind, fix your eyes, hunger and thirst. See, last week we looked at a verse in 2 Corinthians where Paul talked about this battle that wages in the mind. I want to look at that verse again in 2 Corinthians 10. But over in Romans 7, he talks about that same struggle, and we discussed it in one of our life group series. Romans 7, Paul says, the things that I, I want to do, the things I know I should do, 
Those are not the things that I do. The things that I know I shouldn't do, those are the things that I keep on doing. Oh, this wretched man, who can save me from this body of sin? What was he saying? He was saying, in my spirit, I know the right thing, but there's a battle that is waging in my mind. And I have to war against those things. And in 2 Corinthians 10, he tells us how we wage that war. Look at it in verse 5. He says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. We take captive the thoughts that exalt themselves against Christ and we make them obedient. I thought it was interesting when I studied that word for taking captive. The word picture is to capture with a sword or a spear. Now, I don't know what image you get in your mind when you think about capturing. Maybe you think of ropes or or handcuffs or or a prison, but, but the word picture is a sword. We take captive thoughts with a sword. I'm going to tell you why that's so important. Because in Ephesians 6, Paul describes for us the armor of God. He says, we don't, we don't fight with natural man-made weapons. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty through God to the very pulling down of the strongholds of the enemy. What are they? He said, it's the belt of truth. You put on the belt of truth. You put on the breastplate of righteousness. Your feet are, are prepared with the readiness of the gospel of peace. On your head is the helmet of salvation. In your hand is the shield of faith. But there's only one offensive weapon. And he says, you take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. How do we, how do we capture these thoughts that exalt themselves against God? We capture them with the word. We take the word of God as our offensive weapon against the lies and the schemes of the enemy. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, verse 12, about the word, it says, for the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. What is he saying? He's saying the word of God is a sword. It does surgery on our hearts and on our minds and on the way that we see and view things. See, your mind, it's a lot, it's a lot like your muscles, you know, if, if you go and work out or, or decide to jog or exercise, it can do you some good. It can, it can help you to get healthy. But how many of you know if you really want to get healthy, it's not just about what you do with your muscles, it's about what you put in your body? Some of you are like, yeah, that was the problem. <laughs> that's, that's why it didn't work, man. I couldn't, I couldn't stop. You know, I did the exercise, but I couldn't put the donuts down. Your mind's the same way. It's not, it's not just about what you do with your mind and how you think. It's about what you feed your mind. It's about the stuff that you're putting in your mind that's going to give it strength. Can I challenge you today to feed your mind on the word of the Lord? Hosea 4, 6 says, my people perish for a lack of knowledge. They, they just don't, they don't know. They don't know the word. Jesus said it like this, John 8, 32, he said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Now, usually, when we quote that verse, we only hear people quote the second half of it. The truth shall set you free. That is not what that verse says. The truth shall not set you free. 
The truth is not coming in here like a cape crusader trying to set people free. No, knowing the truth sets you free. You got to know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And so once you begin to get God's truth in your life, Psalm 119 says, thy word is a lamp to my feet. It's a light to my path. All of a sudden, you begin to open up the shutter of your understanding, and all of a sudden, God's word begins to shine new light and change your perspective. You'll never fully comprehend God's perspective. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, no eye has seen, nor hath any here heard. The thoughts which have entered the mind of God. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But here's the good news. You can have the mind of Christ. You can have the mind of Christ. We can begin to know his way and walk in fellowship with him in his word. I, I, I love I love the picture that Psalm 103, verse 7 paints for us. Going back to that thought of the children of Israel moving through the wilderness. Listen to this verse. It says, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. In other words, the people understood what God was doing. They could see what he was doing, but Moses knew why. Moses knew God's ways. He wasn't just responding to what God was doing. He had God's heart. The Bible says that Moses had such a relationship with God that God spoke to him face to face like a man speaks with his friend. There was an intimacy in his relationship with God that he would not just know what he was doing, but he could know why he was doing it. And over and over again, the Bible invites us, God's word invites us to have understanding, to have the mind of Christ. Jesus gave a parable. Many of you, you, you learned it as children and maybe even sang a song about it, but Jesus gives a parable of someone that hears the word of God and applies it to their life. And he said, the person that hears the word and does what it said is like a person who builds his house on the rock. How many of you remember that story? And then the storm comes and the, the winds beat against the house and the rain fell, but the house was strong. And then he says, but the person that hears the word of God and doesn't apply it to his life, that's the person that he built his house on the sand. And when the storm came and the, and the winds and the rain raged against the house, the storm uh, the, caused the house to collapse. That's a pretty clear illustration, but here's what you need to understand about that story. First of all, it's the reality that everybody faces storms. So we understand that you're not, you're not wrong or outside of God's will just because the storm came. Because the person who knows the word and applies the word, the storm still came for them. But the second thing that this story communicates to me is the reality that both of these builders had the answer. It's not like one was informed and one wasn't informed. The analogy begins both times saying he's like a man who heard the word. He heard the word. He got the instructions. The difference between the foolish builder and the wise builder was not in the information that they received. The difference was in the application of what they received. So the one who is wise applies, but the one who is foolish fails. You want to get well? Make a decision. Make a decision. And then 
choose to change the algorithm of your thinking. There's a beautiful picture in, in Lamentations. Oftentimes we quote Lamentations 3, verse 23 and 24. But there's a couple verses before that that I think give significance to the familiar words. In Lamentations 3, verse 19, it says this. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. Everybody say, I remember. Then he says in the next verse, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Come on, say, I well remember. See, there's one thing that you and I don't have the ability to do is to forget. There's a lot of stuff I'd like to forget, but the things that make my soul downcast, the things that afflicted me, the bitterness and the gall, I can't forget those things. And there, there are so many things that can so easily trigger those thoughts and those memories and those thought processes that are attached to them. I can't forget those things. But look at the next verse. He says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. I remember that's not what I call to mind. Oh, oh, oh I, I, I know how I used to think about it. I know how it played out. I, I still feel the pain when I think about it, but I'm not calling that to mind. He said, I remember, I well remember, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Now let's look at what he chose to call to mind. Verse 22 and 23, he says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Look at the next verse. He goes a step farther, and he says, I say to myself. You ever had to talk to yourself before? Come on, sometimes that's what you need. You just need to, you need to talk to yourself. He said, I say to myself. Why is he talking to himself? Because just like you and me, he remembers. He remembers the stuff that he doesn't want to think about. He well remembers the pain that he felt in the past. He says, but that's not the stuff I want to think about. That's not the algorithm I want to use to look at my life moving forward. So I'm going to call some things to mind, and I'm going to say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. Your mind, it's, it's like one of those old jukeboxes. You know, the, the, not the digital ones, the old school ones where you punch in the numbers and then the little arm goes down into the cabinet and it, it pulls out a record and it comes up and it, it plays. Now, there's all kinds of number combinations, all kinds of songs you can play, but you call one to mind. You reach down and you call whatever rhythm it is you want to dance to, whatever groove it is you want to move to, you call that to mind, and you choose, and that's the way it is in our minds. There's all kinds of things I can dwell on, all kinds of things I can think about, but I call to mind the faithfulness of God. I call to mind the reality that his compassions never fail. I call to mind that his mercies are new every morning. I call to mind that his love is great and I'm not consumed. I call to mind that the Lord is my portion and so I'll just keep waiting for him because I choose the rhythm that I'm gonna move to. You've gotta call it to mind. 
on Monday, I did something I've never done, I've never done before. Monday night, I went to an AA meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, my struggle with sin has nothing to do with alcohol. That's not why I was there. But I had listened recently to a pastor in his 80s, and he said, every preacher ought to go to an AA meeting. You know, the Bible says in James that we ought to confess our sins one to another so that you may be healed. And I heard this older preacher say the church could learn a whole lot about confessing sins to one another so that they can be healed from an alcoholic anonymous meeting. So on Monday, I went. I decided I'm going to check it out. And I was surprised and humbled to sit in a room with about 30 other individuals, and every one of them, without pretense, Without any facade, every one of them introduced themselves with these words. My name is, and I'm an alcoholic. One guy, he gave the perfect introduction, I mean, even for me. He said, my name is Mark, and my problem is Mark. I thought, that's the truth right there. That's the truth. I want to introduce myself now. But I was amazed as I watched each of them express. The some, they got to this point quicker than others. Some had a long road. But every one of them, at some point, they got to a place where they just said, no more excuses. Do you want to get well? Yes. But that, that means you're going to have to do something you haven't done in a long time. Yes, I want to get well. That means you're going to have to carry your own load. Yes, I want to get well. And I sat there and I listened to story after story of humility following confession from people that just said, I got to the place in my life where I, I, enough was enough. I wanted it to change. And I just wonder this morning if there's enough courage on a Sunday morning as what I felt and experienced on Monday night in the church. I wonder if there's anyone here that would just say, I, I, I'm just sick and tired of being sick and tired. Enough is enough. Do you want to get well? I want to get well. It's going to mean change. I want to get well. I'm going to ask you to do something that you've never done before. I want to get well. It's probably going to be an option you weren't even considering. Yes, I want to get well. And there is power and there is freedom that is available for us. When we change the algorithm and we say, Jesus, I'm not leaning on my own understanding, but in all my ways, I'm acknowledging you, trusting that you're going to direct my path. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. I want to pray for you today. I'm not going to ask anybody to stand up and say your name and state your issue, but I want to ask you to be honest with God in this moment. If you're here and you're listening to this message and, and God's dealing with you, and you're saying, that's me. I, I need God to change something in my life. I need God to, to heal a relationship. I need God to, to, to heal my finances. I need God to change my thinking. I need God to do a work in my physical body. And, and maybe for you, that means work that you're supposed to do. But whatever it is, if you're today saying, you know what? I need Jesus to move in my life. Maybe your need's spiritual, and you need God to set you free today. 
to deliver you from the stuff that's held you captive for too long. If that's you today and you say, I need to confess to Jesus, I want to get well. I'm ready for change. Would you just lift your hand up toward heaven right now? Praise God. Praise God. Yeah, just lift a hand up toward heaven. Anyone else with these that have already lifted their hands? That's me. That is me. I need Jesus to move in my life today. Today. Praise God. You can put your hand back down. Father, right now, let faith arise in this room. God, right now, give us faith to believe that the God who knows no impossibility is standing over us, lying on our mat, standing over a situation that seems like it couldn't change. He's standing right now over and above all of our ideas, all of our efforts, all of our hopes, and he stands as the answer, as the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, today, let faith arise in our hearts to reach out and clasp a hold of the nail-scarred hands of the miracle-working rabbi from Galilee. God, give us faith today to reach out and trust your word, to claim your word and take captive every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. God, give us faith today to believe it can change in Jesus' name. It can change in Jesus' name. I want to ask you to stand with me all over this room.